Johnny handles this journal. It's old and green, worn and tattered. Flipping to the first page where the entry is. The pages are bruised and well rehearsed. Clear sign of its age. Beginning at the top, Johnny reads. Entry number one. I, Sir Ulrich of Nod, was upon my horse by the lake overseeing the sheep as they drank when James, a messenger, brought unto me orders from the king, sealed with his ring for my eyes only. The note was unlike any I had ever received. After signing it, I gave it back to the messenger who rode off in haste. Attaining a large sum of money out of the treasury, I added unto my company, Sir Charles the Navigator, Sir Arthur of Nod the Physician, Sir Favian of the Sea wherein are mighty ships, Sir Fendrell the Brute, a hot-heady and ill-tempered man, but a man of valor with shield and sword. Also Sir Clarence and Sir Francis of the South, brothers who are gifted, well gifted in multiple languages. The seven of us will journey southward unto the harbor. We will loose from thence unto the land of the rising sun, a country torn apart by a ruthless emperor. So I have read. We all said our goodbyes in haste, but we must make it to the harbor by sunrise tomorrow. All the way on my southward journey, I can hear the voice of my son's goodbye in my ear. My wife's warm embrace is still fresh on my shoulders. For the most part, the men that I am with are in good spirits. Sir Fabian will feel right at home in the water. But Sir Fendrell the Brute, on the other hand, could die happy, having never seen a boat. It's best to stay on his good side during this voyage. May the great king above Grant us mercy and safe travel. End of entry number one. And Johnny, about to turn over to the next page for the entry number two, but decides to hold off on that one for another day. Closing it up. Johnny looks up at the moon and the stars that keep him company. And that's the end of that chapter. Entry number two. We finally made it to the port of St. Andrews by sunrise, just as planned. The night prior, we did manage to get some rest by an open fire. A few swigs of tea made with passion fruit did me in, thanks to Sir Arthur. I will become well acquainted with that tea, especially as we journey over open water. The port of St. Andrews is a tight, bustling town. The view here is spectacular. 
Sir Clarence and Sir Francis, the brothers, joked about not having any money for their admission fee on board the ship, but their lust for the crab shack betrayed them. My appetite, however, was hard set on roast beasts, and I had Sir Fendrell on my side. The other three were leaning hard on fish and shrimp. I reminded them of the king's command, that is, that we stay together. Therefore, we cast lots, and it fell on the crab shack. We quickly sat down to meet, for we can see our vessel approaching. I must say, these Dungeness crabs have a sweet, buttery flavor and rich. The meaty texture ranks them truly unique. Sir Fabian ate so much that he could not stand up. When asked why, he replied, Always eat like it's your last meal. Sir Fendrell, the brute, gambled with a few merchant men in that shack and managed to double his money. I attempted to discourage the idea to which the brute replied back in words I cannot repeat, followed up with, you are not my king. So, being put in my place, I held my tongue. Fortunately, the skipper of that ship entered in and called for all passengers to board the mighty Vier. Moments later, we loosed from St. Andrews. May the great king above grant us mercy and safe travels. End of entry number two. Johnny, closes up that journal. Raising up his head, he can see, leaning against the doorpost of that room, Miyamoto, along with armor. Is it ready? Oh, it is ready. Come, eat, get your strength. You're gonna need it very soon. Nice. Hello, armor. Good morning, Johnny. Come on, the food here is really good. I got you a little. I already made you a plate. Come on. All right, all right. I'm, I'm coming. I'm coming. Setting down the journal. Johnny rises to get some strength for that morning. Entry number three. It's been five days now since we departed from the port of St. Andrews. I'm writing this entry under the light of a candle. The night is dark and I reckon I'm the only one awake on the mighty Vier. Two days ago, our third day on this voyage, Skipper Dugley spotted a single wooden ship, roughly the size of our own, save a few meters, and had its distress flag held high above its crow's nest. The good man of this vessel stirred the helm fifteen degrees west while the fore staysail grabbed some wind for a nautical mile. Several carpenters staged on the quarter deck to await their arrival, and with the wind at our back, we arrived east of our starboard in no time. A few of the men here dropped a plank to connect the two vessels, 
I and the six others with me, remained out of sight on the main deck against the forecastle. Just as I feared. Pirates. They stormed on board our ship with speed. But, to their surprise, they had no idea that the king's finest was out at sea that day. The look on their faces when Fenderell shouted, I would give a week's wages to see that again. We had them running in all directions, turning about so fast their shadows were confused. Sir Francis chased three of them towards the bow of the ship. He'll be just fine. Sir Arthur pushed two into the water, to which a few of the merchants began hurling crates at their heads, and I held them I expounded unto them that the sea will do just fine. Sir Fendrell took it upon himself to run aboard the pirate ship. I better go after him, lest he commit crimes against humanity. We carried away a dozen or so captive and torched the vessel. Skipper Dugley gave the seven of us a full refund. But Sir Fabian, a goodly man, who had a name, suggested we give the money to the family of the three carpenters who lost their lives when the pirates stormed aboard our ship. To that, we all agreed and gave the money unto their families, holding it into the treasury till our arrival. May the great king above grant us mercy and safe travel. End of entry number three. Johnny, closing up that book, that journal of Sir Ulrich. <sighs> Feeling that tranquility upon him. Johnny, standing up, turns himself and heads towards the Minka to get some rest for that night. And that's the end of that chapter. Entry number four. We have been out at sea now for three weeks. A violent storm had caught hold of us four days ago and will not let us go. The cells have been risen with the intent of us not drifting too far off course as well as keeping the ship safe. But these proud waves managed to reach the gym boom just above the beak, snapping at the joints of the bowsprit. Fortunately, the carpenters, with the help of Sir Clarence and a good strong will to live, were able to fasten the two together at the joints. Sir Fabian of the Sea is also giving a helping and a much-needed helping hand at the wheel. Down here, though, in the cabin, I managed to pass the time with a little loop playing with one of the instruments I pulled from the pirate ship. If I may boast a little, I have to say, I'm not bad at the strings. The brute, Fendrell, Drank three bottles of strong drink in the past two days and spent all his time rolling from wall to wall 
as the ship leaned left to right. The man I'm with sure get a kick out of it. We put pillows against the wall to soften the impact, but occasionally someone will replace one of the pillows with a pot. I don't know who, and frankly, it is a satisfying sound when I hear the pot ring out every time the ship leans to the left. Time lapse. The following day, approximately noon, the storm was officially over, and all of our shoulders were embraced by a warm sun. Uncertain on how far we have drifted off course, the skipper will wait till the stars appear tonight before dropping sail to get us realigned. At this time of entry, Vendrell is screaming out in pain by reason of a headache. Sir Arthur, the physician, is to his rescue. Great news! This evening, when the stars had appeared, we were closer to the land of the rising sun than any of us had anticipated. The storm must have pushed us along in the right direction. The Almighty, looking down upon us, of course. The navigator brought unto us a green pheasant, a clear sign that we are near the end of our journey aboard the mighty Vier. And also, on this night, the cook had killed a long overdue fatted calf and served it alongside rosemary roasted potatoes, roast baby leeks with oak-smoked bacon, my personal favorite. And please, don't hold the roasted garlic and clementine carrots. Our spirits were high, and joy rang out from the forepeak to the balcony just below the stern castle. For on the morrow, our feet will be on dry ground at last. May the great king above Grant us mercy and safe travel. End of entry number four. Johnny, sitting upon that muse rock, closes up the journal, and just in time. For Max and Avillion are waving out the door, breakfast is ready. And he can see, off in the distance, Miyamoto, also getting ready to train Johnny. He nudges Armor for Armor had fallen asleep on that warm rock. Hey, Armor, wake up. Breakfast is ready. Let's get to it. Oh, 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 oh yeah, yeah, definitely. I need it. They both leap off that muse rock and head in to get some strength. Entry number five. At first light in the morning, the land bell rang out, and I've got to say, that was the most beautiful piece of music my ears had ever heard. There was not one soul on board that did not stand on the deck of the mighty Vier. All of us who had traveled beheld afar off the beauty of the land of the rising sun, it is spring, from what Sir Charles had learned by studying many books, Sir Clarence agreed by simply looking upon the trees. As the ship docked, many of the locals greeted us with music, 
with dancing and gifts. I reminded my men that we are here for one thing, and one thing only, and that is the life of the emperor. I knew all of them were anxious to unload and eat at the nearby tavern, and that's just what we did once we exchanged our money for the common currency of the land. The brothers, who are gifted at multiple languages, spent little time eating and got hard at work communicating with all the people here at the port. A young lady, wearing a long yellow silk garment whose black hair is equally as long, approached the brothers introducing herself as Yuko, being interpreted sunlight. She informed us that she had waited for our arrival for a long time and that we should accompany her to a village called Shen. We all agreed to follow her. The brothers took the lead with Yuko, while the rest of us traveled in the rear in a low-key tactical formation. We were uncertain of how she was waiting for us, seeing that our arrival was secret. Just a few short hours later, we arrived at a beautiful village called Shen, Farming seems to be the trade of choice for the men, while quilt making is common work for the women. Being nearly a foot taller, as well as different facial features, is quite the recipe for turning lots of heads. Yuko beckoned us to rest our feet at the feet of one called Musta. Sir Arthur was not going to argue with that, and neither was the rest of us. We all were led to a mammoth of a statue at the center of Shen. Cherry blossom trees surround this beauty, this work of art. The statue is that of a young and handsome warrior whose face and eyes don't match up with anyone on this island. Sir Fendrell pointed out that he looked like my son when he gets older. A few laughs later, and all jokes aside, I inquired from Yuko on the nature of the statue, to which she replied that its origins is unknown. But as legend has it, Musta is the man who would bring peace to the land and free Yokai from his stone prison. The entire village was built around the statue, for it was here before anyone else. After we had rested, we took a stroll through the Shan. The people here are peaceful and polite. Music is constantly played at all times. The Koto. A 13-stringed instrument is most common. I will get my fingers on that one later. I, along with Sir Charles, were holding back sleep as we toured the village. Thankfully, at the far end of Shan where we were at, we discovered the best tea parlor on earth, in my opinion. We sat down on wooden chairs outside while the women served us. Hot water poured over dried, crushed green tea leaves and whisked with bamboo is the only way to serve this deliciousness. As we thus drank our tea, from a short distance heading our way was a jester. He traveled to us doing backflips. I told Sir Arthur that his brother finally made it. He was an amusing character, entertaining us as we drank. All went well until water shot out of his sleeve into the face of Sir Fabian. 
Sir Clarence restrained him. Perhaps it was a fluke. But once a small lemon cake left the jester's hand and smeared across Sir Fabian's face, there was no stopping him. A flipped table, shattered pottery, a broken expensive wooden chair, shattered tea leaves, and an unconscious jester later, we owe not only money but an embarrassing apology to the owner of the tea parlor. May the great king above grant us mercy and safe travel. End of entry number five. Entry number six. We spent a great while at the village of Shen, learning everything there is to know in regards to Akuno the Emperor. Yuko explained to me that the Emperor is empowered by the four shogun of Mount Dosset. Mount Dosset is a wall of earth and rock extending from the north to the south as far as the eye can see and rises straight up in elevation for a thousand feet. The only passageway into the cities within the borders of the East Dosset where the shogun are located is through the iron doors which are between the feet of Yokai the stone dragon. Legend has it, after Akuno snatched away the element crystals from Yokai, Yokai leaned against the mount on his back to face the west before turning to stone. Just on the other side of the doors of Yokai are five iron doors, two on the left, two on the right, and one in the middle which is always on fire. Within the four iron doors is a passageway leading to the Shogun. The Emperor had shattered the element crystal into four parts and placed them within the crown of the four Shogun. If anyone were to attain the four element parts and place them within the crown of Yokai, he would be given the Dragon Stone. Only then could the Emperor be fought and destroyed. Time lapse. The men and I, along with Yuko, journeyed far east of the land of the rising sun. We were given such things as were needed for this journey. A few strong stout horses, a covered wagon. The seams in the body of the wagon were caulked with tar to protect it from leaking if we were ever to cross any rivers. A tough brown canvas cover was stretched across the wagon for protection from the elements and the frame and suspension were made of wood and the wheels were iron rimmed for greater durability. Within the wagon is enough rice and nuts to get sick on. Two weeks into our journey, we finally arrived on the east side of the dead forest and are now facing the flat plains of Kanashi which is being interpreted the Plains of Sadness. Not a leaf on a single tree in the forest, neither a shrub on the ground of Kanashi. The entire place is cursed. Yuko tied up the horses here at the forest. We must travel on foot from here on. And a great way off across Kanashi, I can see 
Yokai, the colossal stone dragon leaning against Mount Dosset. Sir Findrell took the lead. The brothers remained in the middle with Yuko, and Sir Arthur was in the rear. The rest of us filled it in. The day is beautiful, and the atmosphere is quiet. Let's just hope it stays that way. May the great king above grant us mercy and safe travel. End of entry number six. Entry number seven. The eight of us made it past the plains of Kanashi and arrived at the gates of Yokai. Yokai was larger than life and the gates between his feet were open. I, along with Sir Fendrell, entered the gates cautiously, walking in a back stance, that is, with our shield in the high and our swords behind us in the low ready for a powerful and deadly swing if needed. Yuko and the other men remained outside, and just as Yuko said, there was nothing here but five iron gates, and one of them was strangely on fire. There was no explanation on why the door was on fire, but it did, however, explain why we all ate a hot bowl of rice. Yuko somehow managed to open one of the five iron gates, which had the image of a tree on it. The place behind it was a jungle, but we had to continue through it. Sir Charles, the navigator, took the lead. I, along with Sir Arthur, the physician, remained in the rear as we pushed through the impossible. Time Lapse After a day's journey, we passed right through an abandoned town. The forest had swallowed up what was once a place of rest for many families. Sir Francis carried away a few souvenirs. One of them was a small sax knife named Chokmaw, which is interpreted wisdom. It looked just as new as the day it was forged. As we continued, the plant life thinned out considerably, only to reveal large roots coming out of the ground. Sir Fabian likened it unto a giant snake. We followed the roots for approximately half a mile as it turned, twisted, and snaked through the grass all the way until we came to a clearing in the forest. And standing in the clearing in front of us was a solid tree of considerable weight and size. I would say it was the biggest living thing on earth. The pine tree is not like any I had ever seen. It has such incredible height, and yet the branches are conveniently low. As we were walking towards it, Sir Clarence halted the team quickly. He pointed to the right, and at the right of the tree walking towards us was the Shogun, the Shogun of the forest. He was twice the size of a man. His skin was mostly covered in what I can only describe as the bark of an oak tree, and illuminating in his forehead was that element crystal. Yuko had informed us that since the last time she saw him, his image had changed. 
His skin had changed and he had grown in size. It most likely is due to the element crystal and its power. He wasted no time talking and got right to business. Vines sprang up from the earth beneath our feet and entangled us. Yuko was spared. Sir Fendrell bit through the vines and freed up his hand. Using a dagger, he freed himself entirely. He threw the brothers the dagger, then took up shield and sword and does what Fendrell does. The rest of us quickly joined him. The Shogun was not fast, but strong, and strong was an understatement. The blows which he dealt left marks in our shields and likely fractured my arm behind it. Our swords did little to his barkly skin. An axe would do better. Shortly after fighting him, we all decided to retreat. It was no use. We managed to escape, heading back towards the gate on our day-and-a-half journey. With just a few bruises, scrapes, splinters, and a broken ego. May the great king above grant us mercy and safe travel. End of entry number seven. Entry number eight. After our encounter with the Shogun, we retreated as far as our wounded bodies would allow us. I, along with the other men that were with me, were thankful that Yuko was unharmed. Before the sun went down, we took our rest by an old and majestic oak tree just shy of the trail we'd been traveling on. The grass here was thin and would do just well when accompanied by an open fire. Sir Arthur and I rolled some stones to the site, placing them just a few feet apart. Afterwards, I found a sturdy log to sit atop of the stones to create a bench. We'd done this a couple more times to accommodate us all. Sir Fendrill stalked the fire. The brothers went in search for fruits and nuts, while Sir Charles and Sir Fabian hunted for something with meat. Yuko was of great help. She brought an abundance of elderberries, gooseberries, and huckleberries, along with a cluster of large muscadines. A shout of joy scared off a murder of crows as Sir Charles was returning from his hunt. As they broke through the hedge and entered the camp, their buttery teeth revealed by a stretchy smile said it all. A hog, and of considerable size, was being drugged behind them by an old man's beard. We had found favor in the sight of the Almighty, for I myself did find a patch of wild potatoes flourishing not too far from here. Sir Fendrell also added to this feast a bunch of apples, and we all pitched in with herbs and spices along with preparing the meat. Sir Clarence knew his way around a hog, so we let him have at it. Yuko also put her hands to the plow and made a dry hog rub that would make your toes curl. A half hand of salt 
and ground black pepper, island jerk seasoning, one-fourth hand of sugar cane, a generous amount of chili powder, and one-eighth hand of cayenne pepper is the only way to season this meat. As it roasted over the open fire, we raised our cups of wild apple cider and threw it back. The sun had gone down on the outside, but our lamps of joy was burning bright as the noonday. We told stories of how things used to be. Each one of us had our chance at story time. Sir Fabian had us laughing so hard that Sir Arthur threw up behind the oak tree. Sir Clarence, however, was the best at not leaving out any details. Yuko also told some of the most fascinating stories of growing up here in the land of the rising sun. Eventually, the hog was done roasting. We slapped some honey on it while I served it. Afterwards, we sang a song. The only thing that would make this night better is if my son were with me. All of us, including Yuko, carved our names in the oak tree using chokemaw. Sir Francis decided to leave the sax knife in the tree next to his name. Afterwards, everyone got some rest while I took the first watch and polished off this hog leg. <sighs> May the great king above grant us mercy and safe travel. End of entry number eight. Entry number nine. The following day, we all safely made it back to the gate. My arm is feeling a bit bruised and some mild swelling. There's no doubt now that I fractured it. Sir Arthur had in his medicine bag the flowers of St. John's wort. After soaking them in olive oil, he applied the red oil to my left arm. I'll keep my greaves loose until the swelling goes down. Yuko was able to unlock one of the gates which had the image of a beast on it. I took the lead along with Yuko, and we traveled alongside Sir Clarence as well for interpretation. Shortly into our journey across a rough and rugged rocky terrain, we entered into a village made up of mostly stone. The men of this village were just as rocky as the ground beneath my feet, but they were much kinder than their appearance. Fearing we might get sick, we took no food nor drink which they offered us. The leader, Myokar, described unto us the Shogun of the Stock. That is, livestock, of course. He is a beastly man, quick on his feet and loud. But while we thus spoke, the Akuma could be heard approaching the village. The Akuman are devilish soldiers that work directly for the Emperor himself. They are covered in black and dark brown armor. Their helmets are of a ghostly appearance, and they almost always travel with at least one Inu, that is a wolf-like beast with horns as a goat and a lion's mane. Myokar took the aid of us and hid us under the floor of his bedroom. The floor was wooden, 
like most floors in this village. It was a small, cramped space with little room to breathe. Mile Car overlaid the floor with a rug and spread garlic cloves over it to camouflage our scent. There was only a pallet to sleep on and a small bookshelf in this room. The Akuma went from house to house in search for our whereabouts. And while we waited patiently in the dark with mild lighting, an Inu walked in with his nose to the ground. We all held our breath. As he paced around in the room, the garlic might not have been foolproof. He caught a scent in the corner, in the corner of the opening where we are let down, clawing and scratching. He dug up the carpet right above Sir Fabian. He worked hard at getting through that wooden floor. Sir Charles passed a dagger to Sir Fabian. There was little to no room to fight, but if the Inu breaches the floor, he would have his mouth full of folded steel. Fortunately, ere he break through, a call for the Inu sounded from outside. We all breathed a sigh of relief as the Inu made his way out. The Akuma were finished searching and traveled towards the gates. We gave thanks to Myokar along with some good sum of money. That money was for risking his own head for ours. We then quickly left the village. At least the people here should be in danger for our sake. May the great king above grant us mercy and safe travel. End of entry number nine. Entry number 10. The seven of us pressed on further from life and closer to death, for that's all we have seen for the past five miles. The luscious grasslands and towering pine trees only existed in our minds. Nature itself had abandoned this forsaken realm. The ground beneath our feet was parched and cracked, resembling a vast mosaic of arid earth. We halted our journey in the heart of a rocky valley. Sir Charles drew our attention upward towards several cave entrances carved right into the rock. An attack from overhead was likely and unavoidable, therefore we traveled slowly in a rolling barrel formation with our shields high. Sir Fendrell, shortly after, halted the formation upon hearing movement towards a south cave entrance approximately 70 yards from our position. The group tightened up as we sat in silence. Sir Arthur had the lead on this one. He is cunning and quick on his feet. And as we sat in this uneasy silence, small rocks began to dislodge from the cave's mouth. Each pebble that trickled down intensified our collective heartbeats. In this stillness, gruffs and guttural sounds emitted from the depths within. Shadows flickered across the rocky walls, hinting at a monstrous presence concealed within the darkness. Sir Fendrell reassembled the formation, five towards the cave's mouth and the brothers at the rear. The seven of us 
tighten our grip on our swords. Our eyes darted nervously between the cave's mouth and the ghostly outlines of the surrounding cliffs. And as the tension reached its peak, a cold wind swept through the valley carrying a low resonating rumble. Then, from the depths of the cave emerged the Shogun. He was more beast than man, with fur-matted limbs ending in razor-sharp claws. Dark matted fur clung to his monstrous form. His eyes were a shade of green that pierced through the darkness, revealing an unsettling intelligence that surpassed the beast within. Upon his forehead, though, was a pulsating brown crystal that cast eerie shadows across his bestial features. The crystal seemed to pulse in synchrony with the Shogun's unholy heartbeat. The clash began with a thunderous roar as the six of us led by Sir Fabian charged at the beastly Shogun. Sir Charles stayed back with Yuko. Sir Fabian, a valiant knight, fought with unmatched courage, pairing the Shogun's attack with skill. However, the beastly's foe's strength proved overwhelming, and with a mighty blow, Sir Fabian was thrown aside, his armor bearing the scars of the brutal encounter. Undeterred, the remaining five of us pressed on. The Shogun proved a formidable adversary, and one by one, we succumbed to his savage onslaught. Injured and fatigued, the odds seemed dire. Yet, when the Shogun lunged at Sir Fendrell, I seized the moment. With a quick strike aimed at the brown crystal, my blade found its mark, and not a moment too late. The Shogun crumbled to the ground lifeless right beside the crystal. Yuko secured that beautiful stone. The six of us rushed to the side of Sir Fabian. He is weakened and battered. All of us held his right hand as he said these final words. Brothers, you fought with valor and strength, but remember our duty is to not only vanish darkness, but to preserve the light. I face my fate with honor. After these words, he closed his eyes and fell asleep. The six of us carried our brother and laid him to rest outside the doors of Yokai, just to the right. Our intent will be to bring his sword home with us after the mission is complete. May the great king above grant us mercy and safe travel. End of entry number 10. Entry number 11. The six of us and Yuko camped out outside the gates of Yokai for three days, waiting. Perhaps someone will open the fiery gate from within. 
While we waited, the brothers kept the vultures away from Sir Favian. It was on the third night while we were sleeping that Sir Arthur woke us up, who was on guard. And as we woke up, the distinct sound of horse hoofs could be heard approaching the fiery gate from within. The six of us was on our feet faster than ever, for we all knew that this could be our only chance. We backed up against a wall out of sight and behind our shields and low to the ground. Yuko is carrying the shield of Sir Favian. She is beside me. Just as soon as we got settled, the gate of fire opened and several men on horseback rode off into the night in a hurry. We likewise made haste to enter into the gate. Once we were in, the gate closed behind us. Sir Arthur and I made sure we were not seen by the horsemen, for we entered in running backwards. Once inside, we halted in our tracks. A labyrinth. We were in a giant maze of rock, very tall. We could go left, right, or even straight. Yuko informed us that there was only one correct path, any other path would lead to death. Sir Charles, the navigator, drew our attention to the ground on the left. Horse tracks. It was evident that this was the only correct path. Therefore, I drew out my dagger and etched a line on the bottom rock for the intent of finding our way back. We moved cautiously through this dimly lit labyrinth, fear gripping our hearts as we sought escape, for a menacing beast was lurking somewhere in the shadows. Each turn presented a challenge. Another challenge was that the stones were getting harder and my dagger was getting duller. Sir Arthur devised a clever plan to mark our path through this maze. We used a handful of coins from our bags. We discreetly dropped them at strategic turns, letting the glinting metal rest in the dirt in the corner or against a wall of every turn. A few handfuls of coins later, we finally made it out the other side. We found ourselves atop a hill. Below us sprawled a bustling medium-sized city. But our gaze was drawn to the castle in the distance. On top of it was a tower under construction, and I reckon it would reach into the heavens upon completion. Sir Clarence, suggested that we rest here until the morrow. Sir Fendrell planted the seed of an orange where he slept. We all laughed, asking him if he planned on staying a while. May the great king above grant us mercy and safe travel. End of entry number 11. Entry number 12. The following morning, we picked up quickly. Yuko led the way through the city with the sense of urgency as we sought the emperor. All eyes were on us, for it was evident that no one here looked like us. Eventually, we were led to a place in the courtyard wherein large stones created a perfect circle. Yuko stayed hidden for safety. 
It was here that we confronted the Emperor. His presence cast a shadow over the entire kingdom. Embedded in his crown was a mesmerizing gold crystal. Its brilliance captivated all who gazed upon it. He had to his right a samurai, very fierce, whose body smoked. We stood behind our shields with swords ready, and with a gesture from the Emperor, his right-hand man advanced towards us. And I've got to say, I've never seen a man unsheath his sword as fast as he did. His precision with the sword was unmatched. He made a quick end of Sir Arthur, but just as quick was Sir Fendrell. The samurai's head nearly rolled away when this right-hand man fell to the earth. Our attention then turned towards the Emperor. We must make this quick, for we can feel the ground rumble from the feet of a thousand Akuma warriors. We descended upon the Emperor like rain. We were not fighting a human. We were fighting a beast, for his strength was painfully above ours. He struck the shield of Sir Charles so hard that it shattered his arm. Sir Charles fell by the sword. Sir Clarence fell by the sword. His brother, Sir Francis, fell by the sword. Sir Fendrell and I pushed hard at the Emperor. I managed to run my blade across his face in an attempt to dislodge the crystal. Just then, a burning pain I felt in my side, and I knew that Akuno's blade has found me. I fell unto my back. The sky never looked so blue. I can hear the Akuma closing in all around me, and stepping over my body was Sir Fendrell turning in every direction with his sword to protect me. His body became a pincushion. He took arrow after arrow. But he did get him a few as well. Sir Fendrell fell by the sword. He collapsed onto my body and whispered these final words into my ear. I would have died happy having never seen a boat. Just seconds later, bright light shone all around us. The noise quieted, and I felt hands grab me and pick me up. The next thing I knew, I was slouched over the back of a horse and Yuko was at the reins, her yellow dress blowing in the wind. May the great king above grant us mercy and safe travel. End of entry number 12.
Entry number 13. I have been at the physician's house for two days now. The last two days have been nothing but sleep and more sleep. The physician gave me enough opium to kill a bear. Therefore, I requested only herbal teas from now on till I need sleep. Yuko have been by my side continually. May she be the mother of kings and princes. The main physician will be here tomorrow, Takakashi. He will inform me of my health, whether I will join my brothers on the other side or go back to embrace my love once more. But I'm leaning more towards the first outcome. My men were the finest in all the earth. They raised not their sword in vain. Neither of them were of a double heart. I pray that the children of Tannen take on their names, that they be not extinguished from off the earth. I requested of the daimyo that if it be possible to bring my men out of the enemy's camp and let not the corpses of the honorable be defiled. Time lapse. Great news. I'll be just fine. The emperor's blade had missed every vital organ and my fever has been brought down. But right now, I'm tired. It's late in the night. Time lapse. It's been now three weeks. I've been improving very well. Takakashi said he's never seen a stronger patient. The locals here have picked up our language fairly easy. The two brothers taught them well. I, on the other hand, will need a lot more time to understand these lines and slashes on paper. I'm currently sitting up against the headstone of Sir Arthur. Across from me is Sir Fendrell. And there are no lack of flowers here, and the smell is strong. I do believe I heard Sir Francis take in a deep breath of its fragrance. I see just up ahead in the ocean. My ship, the mighty Vier, coming to take me home. I will leave this journal here at the land of the rising sun. My prayer is that it will one day be a light in the darkness to whomsoever shall take on this task. I give thanks unto the daimyo, unto Takakashi, and those that taught me the way of the sword. And I give special thanks unto Yuko, the daughter of virtue. May the great king above grant you mercy and safe travel. End of entry number 13. End of the Journal of Sir Ulrich.